Welcome to an episode of Find Your Voice, a movement led by yours truly, Aaron Dew, a guy who has overcome crippling anxiety, adversity, and difficulty like so many of you in life, whose main goal now is to help you combat your excuses, take control of your life, write your own story, and most importantly, find your voice. So now, without further ado, I welcome the host of the show himself, Mr. Aaron Dew. What's going on people? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Find Your Voice. My name is Aaron and as always I am the host of the show. So I am delighted to be able to bring to you today a pioneer for mental health and wellness but more importantly than that a guy who truly cares and that's how I would sum up Dave. Although Dave himself actually calls himself the hopeless homeless hero uh, when I asked him one of the questions later on in this show but He's so much more than that. You see, Dave has had to deal with adversity pretty much his whole life. And I'm talking from everything such as death, grief, abuse, homelessness, and even violence. Yet one of the things that I love about Dave is his attitude and the way he attaches meanings to the events that happen in his life. Because after all, we all go through adversity, but we always have a choice. You see, we have a choice of whether we're a victim or whether we're a victor. And Dave explains choices in relation to always trying to be the victor and always trying to see gratitude in that moment and he does that incredibly now we only touched on some of his adversities in life and i'm sure you're going to agree that his life has definitely had its fair share of troubles and obstacles but one of the things that i really acknowledged about dave and i really was grateful that he was able to share not just with me but hopefully with you guys as well was his mindset, his mindset is fantastic and whatever hits him, he's always finding that silver lining and that is what makes him such a special character. I sincerely hope you enjoy this episode. I urge you all to follow his journey after this because I have learned so much and even since recording this, my whole perception has changed dramatically to all of the cards that I have been dealt. So without further ado, let's get this interview on the way. Okay, brilliant. So I am extremely excited today to welcome Dave onto the show where we're going to be hearing about his incredible story. But more importantly, we're going to focus on choices. Now, the theme of choices will become more apparent as we obviously dive into this episode. But I think before we begin, I'd like to firstly welcome Dave to the show. And Dave, how are you doing today? I'm all good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. So if you wouldn't mind, Dave, could you kind of give us a summary about your story really in terms of what got you through life and where you are today yes certainly well I grew up in a place called Odsall which is in Salford Great Manchester and it was actually described in a Channel 4 documentary as being one of the roughest council estates in the whole of Europe and it, my house bordered Salford Docks the old Salford Docks which is now Salford Keys where the BBC and Media City is and as a five-year-old I used to go over there on my own and just watch the ships and the workers it was just a magical place um, but unfortunately, the aces, the docks closed down, and with that came thousands upon thousands of un- unemployed, unskilled workers. Um, and so it became a very rough, um, crime-ridden place. Um, so at the age of five, I became an altar boy um, at my local church, um, with the primary school I was with. And I served my very first funeral at five years old, which is not normal. And a lot of the, a lot of my life, a lot of people say that's not normal. Mm. Um, and you know what is normal, and then the day is, you know, how you base your experiences, um, which becomes normal to you. And so, at the age of five, I served my very first funeral. And between the age of five and eight, I served over uh, 400 funerals. So I became quite used to death wow. and grief at a very early age. And this sort of really shaped 
um, my life. I'll talk a little bit more about that later with choices. Um, but what it did allow me is at the age of eight, I became an unofficial grief counsellor. Adults used to sit next to me and just pour the heart out. And I'd, obviously at eight years old, I couldn't offer advice. But what I could do was listen. Now, I've supported and helped uh, hundreds of people who have been suicidal over the last few years. And the biggest thing that I could do and anybody could do to save people's lives and actually just help people through mental health issues is to listen. We've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. And so for between the age of eight and 19, I served over 4,000 funerals. So I would consider myself an expert on grieving and death. Um, moving forward, I've had three death threats. I've had three broken jaws two armed robbers against myself. Um, I've identified a young 14-year-old prostitute who I worked with um, many years ago as an outreach worker. Um, so I've had a lot of adversity in my life and every single experience that I've had, I guarantee there was a positive and there was a learning curve that could be taken from it. And because of my experiences from a very young age, I was able to implement these strategies consistently through my life, which has now got me to where I am now as a mental health and well-being consultant, working with the likes of the Football Association in Manchester, uh, working with wrestling companies and just having the time of my life, basically. Wow, <laughs> that's fascinating. So actually, some of the stuff you mentioned there wasn't some of the summary that you gave me when we previously spoke. And so I'm actually glad that you did that because it's given me a bit of an insight into some of the questions I actually was preempting to ask you on this show. So at five years old, you've almost become an unofficial grief counsellor. Now, you've just said it yourself, that isn't really considered normal, especially as we're kind of in that stage where we're very malleable and we're kind of just finding out who we are. I want to ask you a little bit about that then. So do you feel that has had a negative impact on your life growing up in terms of how you've handled it or do you think that you are better equipped for the adversity? No, I don't, I don't see negativity at all because mm. I didn't know that wasn't normal. Mm. You know, that was my life. And so you just go through life, especially at such a young age, just accepting this is what it is. You know, kids are very good at just putting things into perspective and just saying, you know, let's get on with it. Mm. You know, kids are very resilient and we don't give them the credit that they deserve. And so by walking into that church and yeah, I remember the very first time I did it. I remember it clearly. The coffin was higher than me. I was wow. smaller than the coffin um, whilst it was on the stand. And it was, it was quite intimidating you know as a five-year-old um but it was you know it was character building you know when you've got 120 130 people all crying and you're four five six years old staring into this you know all i could do was focus on what i was doing at that time so it was the jobs that i was doing for the priest whether it was for you know the, the bread and the wine or whether it is uh, the holy communion or whatever it may be mm. and moving forward i'm a master practitioner in mindfulness and, you know, that was a form of mindfulness. I just had to be present and focus on what was happening in the now and not what was happening out there in the future. You know, so I can't see any negativity at all about it. You know, it's how you, it's how you shape your experiences and how you react to them. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you also touched on a brilliant point as well where you talked about listening. Now, funnily enough, I actually just released a very short episode this week about listening, but not so much in terms of the mental health perspective, which is what you've touched on. And the reason I think that is an important point that I just want to raise again that you've said is because my mom suffered with chronic depression. She still does for the best part of eight years. So up until eight years ago, mental health to me wasn't really, it wasn't important if I'm completely honest. It wasn't part of my life. It wasn't part of yeah. my family's life. 
as obviously I've started to live with someone, i.e. my best friend who's now going through this stuff, I obviously became more aware. And the more I speak to people with mental health, hence a bit of the premise behind this show as well, the more I realize is that you've hit the nail on the head there. Listening is so important. Sometimes they don't want you to instantly try and fix their problem or solve it. Sometimes they just want a soundboard just for you to hear them. And they actually want is to actually feel like they matter and their opinions matter. So I think that's beautiful that you said that. And just in your line of work as well, I can imagine how important it is for you to obviously be doing that as well. It's massively important. And the thing is, when people are going through depression, it's very real. Mm. You know, you get a lot of um, motivation speakers, you get a lot of people who are therapists and what have you. And a lot of therapists, you know, I don't want to be controversial, but a lot of therapists peddle fear, Mm. you know, and they give you a little bit to make you feel a bit better. And I'm talking about the private side of things rather than sort of the NHS side. Mm-hmm. Um, but they give you a little bit to make you feel a bit better, but then they instill this what if, what if, what if. And then all of a sudden, these people are thinking, oh, I can't get out of this. I need to be with this therapist a lot more. And what I do is, my tagline is, my job is to be out of a job. You know, if I've got somebody six months, five months, three months down the line, mm. and they're still suffering, mm. then I'm doing something clearly wrong. You know, I'm not giving them the best um support that i could possibly give them and so by listening you know there's one of three things if not all three things that are prevalent within um depression anxiety and that's either fear regret or forgiveness and based on my experience over the last 25 30 years you know i see this on a daily basis and it's either anxiety is fear-based fear-driven what if you know whatever goes wrong you know whatever go out and everybody laughs at me or whatever it may be and so by listening to these people and allowing them to get let go of the baggage and not actually judging them. It's got to be without judgment. Absolutely. Um, by allowing them to be, have this space, this safe space, you can find out whether the language and the tone is fear-driven or regret-driven or it's a forgiveness issue that they're rather not forgiving themselves or somebody who starts to do them harm emotionally or physically. And it, that's how I get to the root cause pretty quickly, by listening. Hmm. I hear the language, I hear the tone, I listen to the words that they're using and I decide whether it's fear, regret, forgiveness and we then dive straight into it. That's fantastic. That's really, really useful to know. I think obviously for people listening as well, uh, mind the pun. That's brilliant. So just also as well, I wanted to ask a question. I'm not sure if it's actually related to the profession that you're doing now. You mentioned that you've had death threats, broken jaws. Is that because of the line of work you're doing or is, is this going back to your previous childhood when you came up in a rough area? Um, Half and half, really. Um, uh, trouble follows me. I don't know why. Um, right, okay. <laughs> trouble follows me. I think what it is is I, I just can't stand injustice and mm. I'm not one of these uh, that can walk away from situations where somebody's been hard done by. Mm. Um, and so one example was I was working in an outreach um project in the red light district in manchester mm-hmm. and i was working one young girl 14 keely who was hooked on her when she was in a really bad state and she came up to me one night and said dave i need to die now i've supported people who wanted to die i've only ever had one who's needed to die and so we worked with her for about three months trying to get the hope back in her eyes and she came back to me about three months later and said dave i want to make good of my life i want to go back into childcare." i love that so we arranged to meet the next day to get her in because this was before mobile phones and internet so we couldn't just pick up the phone and say right everybody let's get her out of here and so we arranged to meet her the next day but she panicked and saw the pimp what she was planning to do and rather than let her go he doused me in petrol and burnt her alive 
So I get the I get the call to go and identify this young girl's body, and it's just charred remains. It was the most horrendous sight you'll ever see. Um, and so I went straight into the red light district to confront this pimp. Mm. Now this guy was a six foot four black Jamaican yardie. He was huge. And I was—I looked like the milk of our kid, you know. What I mean, <laughs> five foot six at the time, blonde hair, you know, looking a little bit innocent. Mm. And you know, one of the one of the best advice I can give anyone is don't make decisions when you're stressed because yeah, I was extremely stressed at that point. Anyway, he stared right at me and he left me for dead. He broke my jaw and he threatened my life. Said, "If I see you back in Manchester again, I will kill you." Now I went into a very deep depression after that. Mm. I tried to kill myself. It was half-hearted in fairness when I look back at it. Um, but I had so much guilt and shame because all I kept on thinking about was what if I would have took her out that night, she would have still been alive. Mm. But when I was back in the altar boy days and as an eight-year-old, I actually asked the priest um, when I was eight years old, said, how do I live a life with no regret? Mm. Because all I kept on hearing was these people saying, I wish I would have spent more time with a dead person. I wish I would have spent more time with him or her, or I wish I wouldn't have had that argument. And the priest said to me, he said, to make, to make peace with your decisions is to live a life of no regret. So make peace with your decisions immediately, good and bad. Because you would have done it with a sound mind. Absolutely. You can't regret it. And even if it wasn't a sound mind, because you was extremely stressed or on drugs or high on drugs or whatever, then you wasn't a clear sound mind in order to be able to regret it, if that makes sense, because it's already happened. Absolutely. Um, and so... For about three months, I was in deep depression, but I kept on trying to find the positivity. I kept on trying to find the learning curve from it. And it was so difficult, but then I realized control the controllables. At that time, we could not have logistically got her out of that red light district that night. It was impossible. And it's amazing how quickly the relief comes upon you when you start seeing the positive, start seeing the learning curve and what you could have controlled and what you can't control. And then I started thinking about, um, you know, what she was going through at the last moment in her life. And it dawned on me, nobody cared. Nobody cared about her. There was only me who actually shown any signs of caring in her life. And that gave me a sense of empowerment where I thought, you know what, I've done good. You know, when, when she was dying, at least she would have really realized that there was at least one person who cared enough to put his life on the line mm. to help her. And that got me through it. You know, and ultimately I end up forgiving myself for feeling the guilt and the shame, but also forgiving the pimp for what he did. Mm. Not to forget, but just to disassociate that pain that he'd put onto me. Because as a result of his actions, I tried to kill myself, I went into deep depression. And, you know, nobody should have that power over you. By forgiving him, and that took me a good three or four months of writing a letter and reading it every single day until it felt natural. Um, ultimately... You know, that pain was taken away once I forgave. So regret, fear, and forgiveness are the three. If you can get a nail on, mm-hmm. your life will be so content and stress-free, I can assure you. Dave, that's absolutely amazing. You've you've resonated with me there on so many points. I mean, I've got a numerous amount of things that I want to talk about. I think, firstly, I just want to say it's very admirable in terms of what you did. You know, you did everything that you could to tr- obviously try and help that poor girl. So... I'm very, very glad that you managed to forgive yourself afterwards. And just on the forgiveness side, in terms of what the pimp did, and you said you forgave someone, the reason that resonates with me is because I was assaulted and left for dead as well. And it was a, it was at a crossroads in my life. And 
I probably didn't go through the same extent of depression and obviously my circumstances were slightly different. But one of the things that I would say is that when I forgave that person and I disassociated that pain, yeah. my life became so much better. I, I was able to find beauty and stuff again. I met my wife. I, I'm, things just started changing for me massively. And forgiveness, I don't know if this is a male thing. I don't know if it's just because I'm a stubborn person growing up and it's just my character. But it was difficult. There was there was ego attached to it. There was like, why should I forgive somebody else? And it is what you've just said. They had power over me. And the moment I kind of, I actually wrote it out myself. And funnily enough, I actually sent it on Facebook because I knew who the person was. And I wrote them a message saying, I'm actually forgiving you for me, not not yourself. Because I, I'm not even sure if that person remembers it for a start or if they, if they actually, yeah. if they care, to be honest. But I was like, I need to do this for me. And when I did that, I can't explain it. It was almost like instant that I had this relief over me. So I, th- I think that's beautiful. And I'm so glad that you've done that. But it just shows, I mean, you, you said trouble follows you. And initially I was thinking, what is Dave up to on his weekends? <laughs> <laughs> but actually what you are trying to do is literally just try and serve. And I get you, I get that feeling of injustice when you feel that, especially I think when somebody else who's probably more helpless than yourself is in a situation getting taken advantage of. I think another thing I just want the listeners to really take home from it, other than the three important things that Dave stressed is control the controllables. Yeah. And if I may do a quick segue then, I want to speak about the stuff that you told me prior to coming on this show, which is obviously what we haven't touched on, but I think again, it's definitely going to add some value to our listeners. So if it's all right with you, Dave, just in terms of some of the health complications, because there was a pivotal point when you made a choice and it's that choice I really want to kind of delve into and I want the listeners to kind of take a lesson from if I may. Yes, certainly. So I think what we're talking about here is there's two factors in terms of the health. Um, Several years ago, I started getting breathless. Um, It got to the point where I couldn't even ride a bike downhill without being out of breath. Um, And I went to the doctors and they kept on saying, you've got asthma. No, you haven't. Yes, you have. And it got a bit boring. And then eventually I got a better class of doctor. We moved to Nutsford and we got a better class of doctor. And the doctor actually cared enough to actually do a, a proper test to rule in or out asthma. And we did the COPD test, which I've never smoked in my life. So I knew it wasn't anything to do with that. I've never worked with asbestos or anything like that. But what it did do, it ruled out asthma. And so he said, yeah, you've got something going on with your lungs. We'll have to take, send you to the lung consultant. So I went to the lung consultant and it said, yeah, you've got, uh, at the time it was 42% vital lung capacity, and now it's actually at 30% vital lung capacity, and I've got a paralyzed diaphragm, but they don't believe it's standalone. So they sent me to the neurologist then, and the neurologist did all the tests, and what I said, yeah, you've got um, a rare form of motor neuron disease. So I've gone from asthma, in a space of about six, seven months, gone from asthma to having motor neuron disease. Anyway, so I was on 36 tablets a day and plus morphine, and it was, I was like a zombie. It was horrendous. I was vomiting every day. I had the most horrific of headaches. I couldn't get off the setting. You know, I couldn't do the basic things like go on the floor with my children and play jigsaws. And it got to the point where I thought, all I'm hearing at the moment is no, 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 when my boys are asking for simple, basic dad things. Play football with me, do this, do that. And I thought, I didn't become a father to say no. You know, and so... I looked at my tablet intake and half the tablets were counteracting the other half, but had inside effects. Now, through my experiences, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm quite black and white. I'm very good at taking the emotion out of situations now and looking at the facts. And I thought, you know what, black and white, I would rather be in pain and drug free than be in pain 
and have a lot of drugs in my system adding side effects. So I said to my wife, I said, right, I'm coming off all my tablets. And I came off them overnight. And she, she was doing the old, upper room for, you're going to die, you're going to die. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know what? The only person in control of me is me. You know, and I don't mean that in a bad way or a negative way, but I've got to make the right decision for me and my body. And when you look at how the body works anyway, it's a, it's a genius tool we've got. We just abuse it, you know. And, it, you know, there is hope that we can fix so many things if we just fuel it right and actually, you know, do the meditation, do the yoga, do whatever it needs to take uh, to fuel it right. So I had about 10 days of sheer hell. It was horrible. But then I started lifting the fog. The clarity was coming. I could start walking a bit further. I could start getting on the floor playing with my kids. And once you get that little bit of hope, it's amazing how big the light appears. You know, and you start seeing the future again. You start seeing what's happening. And so I started getting a bit more of a better quality of life. The neurologist calls me the freak which is <laughs> every time I see him. But about eight weeks ago, um, my back has been causing me a lot of pain. And so I went for an MRI, an urgent MRI, and they said that I've got severe spinal canal stenosis, which ultimately means I will be paralyzed at some point. <clears throat> Now, I've just put me back out, actually, in the last couple of days. I've not been able to walk properly. It's been an absolute nightmare. Um, and so I went to the consultant, and they sent me to a private consultant because the NHS were about 18 weeks, and they needed something urgent. And I said, look, I work in mental health. I do, you know, I've got all strategies. I can cope. Just say as it is. I don't want all this fluffy bedside manner. And his, his words to me were, um, you may as well book into Dignitas because at least you'll get a nice holiday to Switzerland. Um, and for those who don't know what Dignitas is, it's the place where people go to end their life legally in Switzerland. And what he was basically saying is because of my lungs and the way the vital lung capacity is and the motor and everything else, he said there was 100% chance of death on the operating table. So the choice I was now faced with was death or paralysis, which, you know, not many people have that sort of choice in their life. It's usually, shall I have bacon or egg on my sandwich or shall I be this, you know, whatever. And my overwhelming um, emotion at that time wasn't one of anger and stress. It was actually gratitude and thanks. And I actually shook him by the hand and said, genuinely, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the way you've explained it to me. And he looked a bit shocked and confused. He said, well, if you would have said there was a 60% chance of dying on the table, then that may well have been going through my mind constantly, which would have took my time away from my kids, my precious time away from my kids. I would have been thinking, well, it might work. Is it worth the risk? Whereas now you've said you've got a 100% chance of dying, you've taken that decision out of my hands. So now I can focus on what I want to focus on, which is the positive things in my life. I can still have a relationship with my boys in a wheelchair. I can't if I'm dead. You know, so there's all, again, there's always something to be grateful for. It's just we don't like to look for it. Very sorry to hear your consistent health troubles there, but I just think it's beautiful how you are somebody who's been faced with all this adversity, all this trouble and stuff, and you still see the gratitude side of it. And this was actually what I wanted to speak about at the start of the show, but you've actually answered the question, and I think it lies in the 100% that the consultant came back with. So when they said you had 100%, they took that decision out of your hands. Yeah. And obviously you were left with one choice. But even still then, I still think you made an incredible choice that I think the listeners could take value from is that it's very easy to just sit there and feel sorry for yourself and think, why me? I don't deserve this. The world's after me. I'm always trying to be a good person. I'm always trying to do good stuff. Where's the karma in this? But I just think it's beautiful that 
the first thing that came in your mind was okay gratitude what can i take from this what are the positives from this and this is kind of what i want this show to be about we're all going to be hit with life you know from different times we've all had bad cards dealt to us at certain times some worse than others but it's about what's the positive that we can just draw from this what moment of hope and you said something beautiful earlier on it's about getting the hope back in that little girl's eyes let's get the hope back in our eyes as well as individuals there's another question you know you say why me but there's another question that you can ask yourself why not me yeah you know what makes me so special why i shouldn't get the adversity or the stress or whatever you know at the end of the day i truly believe we we're only given what we can handle yeah you know we and I'm, I'm using this as a way of spreading the message out that, you know what, no matter how hard things get, you know, there's a quote by Jim Rohn, one of my mentors, who mm. I think is just a genius. Um, and one of his quotes, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but he said, um, after every recession, there's growth. After the darkest hour, glorious sunrise. You can't get the glory. You can't get the really good stuff yeah. without going through the dark. It's impossible. You know, we all have stress in our life. We, we can't do anything about that. But what we can do is how we react to it. What we can change is how we react to it. And I guarantee there is not one single person that can give me an, an experience or a situation where I will not be able to find a positive or a learning curve from it. Every single adversity we go through, experience we go through, will have a positive and a learning curve. Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant analogy. And Jim Rohn is obviously one of my mentors as well. As you were saying that, I was almost thinking very quickly like the adversity that I've been through and I thought about how much wiser and how much more resilient and how much stronger I am as a person as a result of it. And although yeah. in that particular moment, you're, you're kind of wishing this never happened, but I'm so grateful that my whole perception, my self-awareness and everything that I've become over the last three or four years, I don't think I would have ever got that just by reading books or watching YouTube videos. So no. in a way, I'm grateful for it, I suppose. And, and maybe that's, those are the words now because I've heard you say that. But um, I, I know you always say, you know, why not me? But it's very inspiring to hear someone like yourself who now your message is to obviously share your story out there and hopefully change people's perception and the way that they see the world as well. Because if we can all see it from the way you see it in terms of let's just look at the beauty from this, let's just take the lessons from it, then I think we'll all be in a much, much better place. Definitely. Fantastic. So now obviously your life then, Dave, is obviously a lot different to say 10 15 years ago obviously with the health complications and stuff as well and now you've got two young boys as well what's a day like then for you like a typical day oh. <laughs> <laughs> well a typical day is i'll wake up and i guarantee that my eight-year-old is um sat on the bed i'll lay on the bed next to us giving both my wife and me son um myself a cuddle mm. um he's extremely caring and loving me 12 year old He's got dyspraxia and um, he's on the autistic spectrum and got several learning difficulties. Um, he's not as uh, tactile and cuddly. He will do, you know, when nobody's looking. Um, but yeah, it's just both my boys are there. They're the first thing that people will see, mm. um, which gives me the strength straight away to get up and start doing. Um, because, you know, it would be very easy to drop into depression. You know, it would, you know we're only a fine line between depression and not depression. Absolutely. Um, and so seeing those in the morning um, it gives me that strength to actually wake up. First thing I do is I just lay in bed and I'll list off in my mind um, what my intentions are for the day and also what I'm grateful for before it's even happened. Um, I'm a great fan of visualising and um, 
just understanding, you know, that we are in control of how our day um, happens. And then I'll go downstairs, have breakfast, and usually the boys are in school. Um, I always take the first half hour to an hour to just meditate. Um, uh, you know, I can meditate whilst people are talking to me. I can just drop into it now. Mm. Um, and then I'm ready for the day. I'm ready for the day. And the, the first question I always ask, guaranteed, when I start into work mode, is who can I help? That's the first question I always ask myself, right, who can I help? It's not about money. It's not about fame. You know, a lot of my life has been volunteering where I've been in the background. You know what I mean? I'm not, now that I've set this business up in the last year or so, I've had to be a little bit more in the front rather than in the background. Um, and, you know, there's times where I'm like, oh, don't really like this. Um, but I then think about, well, actually doing this sort of thing, I'm going to be speaking to a hundred people or a thousand people, which, you know, even if it's only 5% of the people actually take on board what I say, that's still a lot of change. Absolutely. You know, so yeah, the more I do with these sort of things, the better. And I, I don't have, I don't go through life with a plan. You know, um, I'm not, I'm not a big planner. I just say, I just take opportunity where opportunity is. Um, I treat everybody as equal and respectful. And think you know, good things are attracting good things to me. You know what I mean? So as long as you've got the right intentions and the right vision, you know, forget about how you get there. It'll sort itself out. Dave, I love that message. I think um, it's something that I preach quite a bit as well in terms of intent as well. And I just absolutely love your intention for the day, i.e. who can I help? And I can see that that's genuine. It's authentic, obviously, from hearing your backstory in terms of obviously the work that you've done. Even now, it's 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 a selfless thing. It's not like a promotional thing in terms of hey, look at me. It's kind of actually, guys, let me help you move forward in life as well. And I really, really do like that. And I think we are in a society. And I'm not here to kind of go off on a rant and stuff, but there are people who manipulate people quite a lot on social media in terms of trying to either make them buy certain things or almost like sell yeah. themselves and it really grinds my gears it, it genuinely does because i think i obviously come from a similar situation to yourself a lot of the, the work i've done i've always tried to be selfless because i've learned that from my mom my mom's a, a foster carer she's adopted kids she was a nurse her whole life i then gave up a very lucrative job to become a social worker to try and change the world as a social <laughs> worker uh, realized yeah. very quickly i couldn't do that i have brothers and sisters actually from the foster care system who have got autism special needs so a lot of my life has always been about service and even this podcast itself is truly is a passion project that my sole purpose when i do this episode is can i just spark one person's mind today and i've always done that and from the moment i released it irrespective of my own anxieties and the way my accent was or me stuttering and erming all along i was like hopefully i can give someone that bit of maybe inspiration that if I can do it, they can do it. But more importantly, it's getting people like yourself onto the show to really change their perspective and make them realize that actually we need to combat our excuses. We need to face our fears because that's where, that's where the beauty lies in life. And I'm sure irrespective of all the bad things that have gone on in your life, I'm sure you're in a much better place, especially between your ears, like in your mind right now, having suffered everything that you've suffered. And the reason I asked about the routine as well is because I'm, a firm believer that we are results of the habits that we form on a daily basis so it's nice to see you obviously living with ingratitude you've got your kids there that's your instant inspiration that's your why that gets you out of bed and then the meditation again that is something that i really need to work on so the fact that you can just go into meditation at any stage i'm assuming it's because you've been practicing it for a long time yeah yeah it's habit 
Absolutely, absolutely. So think of just one particular instance, Dave, just for the, the listeners of when you've been through adversity. Again, it could be something that you've already mentioned or it could be something completely different. But what I want you to do is actually give us one thing that maybe somebody who has a similar predicament or a similar scenario where they can say, actually, I can relate to that. Yeah, I, th- I think whatever experience um, we go through, um, and a lot of my experiences, a lot of people come to me afterwards and say, oh, my life's boring compared to yours. So, well, you know, boring is probably the wrong word because I don't, I didn't really think it was exciting at the time. <laughs> um, but I think... One of the things that had the biggest impact on me, and people will sort of relate to this, whether they've been through it themselves or they've seen it on the news, is when I was homeless. Um, it's a huge story at the moment, being homeless. Um, and I was 16 at the time when I was thrown out of my house. And my first night was spent, in 1990 this was, so what, 30, 40 years ago nearly? Oh, 30 years ago. Um, and my first night was spent in a very small brick bin shed full of cobwebs and it was piddling down with rain. It was horrendous, 11 o'clock at night, I was thrown out. And the reason why I was thrown out is because um, I wanted to be a volunteer. I wanted to set up a childcare club in Oslo where I grew up. And my dad wanted to be an accountant. He wanted me to escape Salford and become a better person. And I thought I wanted to stay in Salford and be a better person. Mm. And so we was at loggerheads and we didn't see eye to eye and he just threw me out of the house. So for two years, pretty much, I was living above drug dealer squats in cemeteries, um, on park benches. But during this time, um, a resolve had built up inside me. I thought, you know what, what is the point in going back to my dad's house and saying, sorry, I'll be an accountant? When for two years we've been arguing about the childcare club that I wanted to set up. You know, and one thing I always advocate is to live as your true self. You know, no matter who comes out of your life, goes out of your life as a result of that, it's so important. This is where a lot of depression happens, a lot of mental health issues, because you're not living your true self. You're living the story that other people are making up for you. Um, and so I was quite adamant that I wanted to get this childcare club up and running. And because we had no internet and no phones back in the day, I couldn't get signposted to various charities or council and what have you. I just went to my plan A. So I was knocking on doors asking for money for this childcare club. And at one point I was in the same clothes that I'd been in for about three months. I was seriously underweight um, and I was still banging on the doors and I received about two and a half thousand no's, a lot of rejection. Because why would anybody give a 16 year old money in scruffy clothes, mm-hmm. you know, some money for this childcare club? It's for drugs clearly, you know, that's what they'll be thinking. And so I met this guy at the council and he said, you know, he wanted me to go into a YTS scheme. I said, no, I really want to get this childcare club up and running. And he helped me with um, a business plan to go back to these offices to show them the business plan and to um, get the money. And within 25 knocks, I got 25 yeses and enough money to get the childcare club up and running, which was incredible. After two and a half thousand no's, you know, and there's a great picture that we see on the internet of somebody digging. There's yeah. splits, somebody digging and somebody walking away. And at the other end is a pot of gold. And it's, I always believe it's at the darkest hour, as Jim Rohn says, at the darkest hour, you think, you know what, I've got to give up. Just give that extra bit more because that's where the excitement is. That's when, is when you want to give up and you just say, you know what, just one more knock, just one more email, one more call. That's when it'll happen, when you're at the lowest, because it's just testing you to see whether you really want it enough. 
And so I got this childcare club up and running and I passed the keys over to the council and they ran it into the ground within three months and it closed. Now, again, control the controllables. I was emotionally spent at this point. I was drained. I was gone. Um, I was in hospital. I swallowed my tongue. Um, I was mal- underweight, malnutrition, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I put everything, all my energy into getting this childcare club. Now, what I learned from that is, you know, see it through to the very end. You know, if you've got something that you're passionate about, see it through at the very end. And if you've done as much as you can and you can do more, just make peace with it because that could have really made me and turned me bitter. You know what I mean? But I recognised I had gone as far as I could. I can't control other people's behaviour. You know, and their behaviour was I want money from the offices to regenerate Salford to put money into the council offices, not to sell childcare clubs. You know, I did exactly what I needed to do. I, I made um, my dream come true. Um, but what that has allowed me now is, is giving me an experience that I can fall back on. So every time that I'm doing a project, I make sure it's sustainable. When I pass it over, I do my due diligence to make sure that, you know, I've got parks developed in my local area and get a skate park developed at some point very soon. You know, I'm just making sure that everything's in place. So when I walk away, it's going to be there in five, ten years' time. You know, but without that experience, I probably would have done the same mistake again and again and again and again. You know, but I didn't have um, two years was I was on the street. I lived as a livable drug dealer squats. I lived in homeless hostels. You know, and I met some incredibly insightful people. You know, I'm. I lived in a homeless hostel in Salford and my flatmates was an ex-arm robber, a thief and a drug dealer. And rather than looking down at them and thinking, oh, you're scum, mm. my first thought was, you know what, this is my cloth, I need to cut accordingly. These are my people. I'm in this position, so therefore it's only fair that I get to know them. I respect them. I understand how they got to where they are. And so I used to ask questions to them and say, you know, I'd just sit there listening to them. And some of the adversity that they'd gone through the difference being is I could cope with that adversity. I could sort of departmentalize it and actually move, move through it. Absolutely. They, they couldn't, which is why they got into that situation of armed robbery and such. Anyway, long story short, I got a job um, in, a, in a telemarketing place and I hated it with a passion. I lasted two days. I didn't make one single sale because I didn't make uh, one single phone call. I hated it. Um, and I got sacked and I went back in. And I said, look, I want my money, I want my wages. And they said, well, you're not getting paid, you've not done anything. So I got into this big argument, and I said, I'm going to see this place called me smoke, meaning I'm going to see it's court for the money, which is laughing now. A few weeks later, I got a knock on the door, and it was Salford CID, and I was arrested for arson. The place actually had gone up in smoke. So I was facing seven and a half years in prison, and I didn't have a clue how or why this had happened. But they'd had motive, they'd had, you know, I had no alibi. Um, so they pretty much pinned it on me. Four months later, I was answering bail and the CID officer said, yo, you've been cleared, you can go. I said, well, I need a bit more than that. I said, well, somebody's actually owned up to it, somebody's confessed. It turned out to be the drug dealer who I was living with. I'd heard that I'd been arrested and charged for it. He'd gone into the police station 
And his words were, I cannot accept somebody so straight going down for something he didn't do. And he confessed and got seven years. Now, the reason why I say that story is because you've got Salford Council who were there to safeguard the children's future and they just ran into the ground, weren't interested. Yet you get the perceived scum of the earth, the arm robber, the drug dealer, because I treated them with respect, because I listened to them, because I understood that they had a story. When they needed to, they actually, the drug dealer actually went in and confessed and got seven years for it on my behalf. You know, so that just shows. And from that point on, I talk a lot in my professional speaking. I talk a lot about prejudging in business. Just treat everybody with respect. Understand that everybody's got a story. If something's been negative to you, they've got a story. They've got an unresolved issue that they've not been able to actually resolve themselves. Cut them some slack. Give them respect. Say, I'm here for you if you want to talk about it. If not, just walk away. But at least you've tried. Don't react negatively to that negativity. Treat everybody with respect equally and it will come back tenfold in the future. I guarantee it. Absolutely. That's um, Firstly, I just want to say, Dave, I understand entirely now why people are saying their life is so boring <laughs> compared to <laughs> yours uh, because that is such an incredible story. I just... Um, I get a bit emotional when I just see like people doing really good things for people or like doing a selfless act. So that act there from a perceived scum of the earth is just absolutely, it's a, it's a beautiful lesson. It's a lesson for us all to obviously take on board. And again, you've, you've said the right words there that we need to cut people slack when somebody maybe approaches us in the wrong way or they might be having a bad day. But if we could just all treat each other with kindness and respect, I think the world would just be in such a better place. But there's another brilliant lesson again that you touched on that I want people to take home is persistence 2500 no's now there's a lot of us including myself don't even want to get rejected once and i think we have to get used to no whereas my perceptions change with that now for example i'm in property so the amount of rejections from estate agents is incredible and i almost say now every time i get a no it's okay brilliant i'm one step closer to that yes again it's just it's just a little saying i say to myself and that kind of strives me on to go forward so i think that again is an incredible lesson and on that note we are actually going to go into a part of the show which is a very random part of the show i'm not sure you're even aware of this but what i do dave <laughs> is just for about 60 to 90 seconds it's just a bit of light-hearted fun just to kind of give the listeners a little bit more about you just a bit more of a flavor because obviously sometimes the stories can be quite dark so this is just going to be a bit of light-hearted fun so are you ready I'm ready. Okay, fantastic. So we're going to start in three, two, one. If you could abolish one thing in the world, what would it be? Hate crime. Man City or Man United? Man United. Good choice. Your favourite hobby? Reading. Your biggest role model? My sons. Love that. What would you like to be remembered for? He cared. Your biggest goal this year? Uh, speaking in New York, October. Your worst mistake? Not meeting my wife early enough. If you could relive one day again, which day would it be? My wedding day. The ability to fly or be invisible? Invisible. The number one thing that annoys you? My bite and my nails. Money or fame? Neither. Your proudest moment? Uh, getting the childcare club up and running. Your favourite food? Burgers and chips. What song best describes your life? Elvis Presley, Walk a Mile in My Shoes. Love that. If you had an extra hour a day, how would you spend it? With my boys. Netflix or YouTube? YouTube. Your number one piece of advice to your children? Be yourself. Your favourite motivational speaker? Carl Cease. 
And finally, if you could sit with one person in the world for an hour, who would it be? My granddad from my mum's side. Love that, mate. So how did you find that? Hard. Hard. <laughs> Don't do that again. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> the beautiful thing with this is obviously people can take as long as they want really to answer the questions and obviously I can cut out the dead space. So it makes you actually look like a mastermind in terms of your <laughs> answering straight away. Okay, we're almost at the end of the show now, Dave. So I'm a firm believer that hindsight is a wonderful thing. And upon reflection, we can always think of ways to get to where we are quicker, easier or with less heartache. But I'm sure you'll agree that obviously the journey teaches us so much as well. So knowing exactly what you know now, if you could take yourself back to a younger Dave and whisper something in that person's ear, what would you say? I would go back to the first night of being homeless Mm. and I would whisper in the ear, it all works out. It all works out. It's, you know, everything's for a reason. Everything's for a reason. It all works out. Just that sense of hope. Yeah, it's just people get, you know, I don't know, people get, bogged down in the how. Mm. how how to get to a place how to do this you know if we just relaxed and just trusted our gut and did what we felt was right mm. then it will never send you in the wrong path you know it may, it may send you in an adverse path and you know not a very nice path but every single one when I look back and I do my, my professional speaking now I've had, to, I've had to look back at every single aspect of my life, and it's been like therapy. And I look back at the sliding doors moments and what have you, you know what? I've not changed anything. I think your story is incredible. And I think we've all got a story, to be honest. We, yeah. can, we can all look back and we can all pick out the moments, and sometimes it is just about actually acknowledging it. And that does sadly bring us on actually to the last question. And the last question I always ask all of my guests is about legacy. So if in 150 years time, science fails to save us and all that exists is a book and this book is about you, Dave, and it's about all the weird and wonderful, incredible things that you've done in life and all the lives that you've touched. Firstly, what would the title of the book be? And secondly, what would the summary at the back tell us about you? Title of the book, oh, I don't know, um, oh, Hopeless Homeless Hero. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And the blurb probably say something like, he cared and impacted on more lives than he actually knew. Mm. And he was okay with that. He loved that. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's brilliant. And Dave, just before we close the show and give the listeners a chance to obviously connect with you via your social media channels, is there anything that you wish I had asked you today? No, no. it's It's covered, yeah, it's covered pretty much everything okay fantastic well if there is obviously anything people can obviously connect with you I definitely urge all of my listeners to connect with Dave after the show Dave where is the best place people can reach out and send you a DM my playground is LinkedIn um, <laughs> which is Dave Heffernan speaker mm-hmm. um, you can get me on Facebook as well David Heffernan um, but my Facebook page isn't that active at the moment because I've put all my energies and effort on LinkedIn okay fantastic uh, what I will do is obviously get the entire links and i'll put them in the show notes so just to make it easier for everyone they literally have to click it i want to thank dave for sharing his story sharing his vulnerabilities and sharing his wisdom on today's show and also i want to thank everyone at home thanks for listening thank you and remember this podcast is absolutely free so all we ask in return is for you to share this with a friend and drop us a five-star review over on itunes have an awesome day